Today is the first sermon of 2019, and as such, it is particularly longer than the other sermons generally, and I have been chosen to preach it, as I have the last five years, um, <clears throat> because it sets the tone for the other sermons. Today we're going to be finishing the concept of beauty in terms of setting the tone. We're going to start talking about beauty today in terms of leadership and what that looks like. And this has been a particularly trying subject for me because obviously I am a leader in the church. It's a trying subject for me because leadership is in decline in terms of its mind share around the world. It's a particular issue that's near and dear to my heart. So, as we talk about it, I pray that you will bear with me and give me some grace, because I'm going to be uncharacteristically forthcoming, which is a funny thing to say coming from me. <clears throat> so, as I've been prepping for this sermon, I feel as though I've been inundated, inundated with various cultural messages seeking to color my thoughts and to vie for my attention um, in terms of my worldview about leadership without even asking, what is leadership? Without me even asking for people to, to help me figure out what I should be preaching about. Because you've got to remember, this sermon was planned five years ago. So, it's kind of a crazy thought, but it's true. So, without even me asking for help on that, I've been getting all of these ideas about what leadership is from outside sources. I've been offered several definitions. That being a leader means being respectful of others' opinions. That being a leader means appearing approachable, non-threatening, or perhaps even weak. That being a leader means sharing the floor with differing positions and differing ideas. That being a leader means that understanding your success has to do with how much conflict you have. In other words, you're a successful leader if you have no conflict. That a leader's success as a communicator is based on whether he can avoid misunderstanding. That a leader's quality is judged by whether there is a majority of people who approve of his leadership. That a leader's message should be respected, listened to, and received based on how he delivers his message. Many others. See, I've been listening to the things that have been said to me and cataloging them just for this sermon. And all of these do sound good. They sound good on the surface to have in a man who represents us. And of course, that's not really what a biblical leader is. See, these are, these are troubling times. In order to really understand what a leader is and what leadership is, you have to understand what it means first to be a follower. And I don't mean that in the cliche sense. This concept is built into our way of life. Consider how parenthood changes our perspective on both ourselves 
and our parents. Parents are the leaders of our family. Consider how becoming a manager gives us an appreciation for what it means to run a business and to be a better employee. <clears throat> you will all recognize that cliche of parents giving their children pets, right? Why do they give their children pets? To teach them responsibility, right? To teach them how to be better leaders, to bring them into maturity. To teach leadership, we need to have perspective on being followers. And this is where God shines grace on us, right? This is where God shines grace on us through the mystery of his son. Because Christ is both our leader, as the scriptures say, a mighty good leader. Christ is both our leader, but he is revealed to us as also the great follower. His title, Son of God, is a submissive title. It's filled with juxtaposition of both power and of humbleness. And this is true of his other famous and most preferred title, right? Son of Man. Part of the promise that we have in relationship with Jesus is, is the inheritance to one day rule with him. But what we have to remember is that that promise is also that we will always serve him. The interplay between leadership and a good follower is intrinsic in our salvation. It's Trinitarian in nature. And you can't talk about one without talking about the other. And this is most likely why true leadership is always under attack. It's always bombarded by the forces of darkness and the world with a campaign to separate it from the pseudo type of leadership that the world wants. To separate it from, from being truly devoted and truly submissive. Leaders and followers are always separated by the world into two separate identities. Identities that are essentially mutually exclusive. They're made to be against each other. The lie that in this infinite world that a parent was never a child is somehow more entrenched than ever before. Perhaps because we no longer advocate responsibility for others. So then, because we no longer advocate being responsible for others, people never learn what it means to grow. They never learn what it means to grow into managers, or to parents, or teachers, or to husbands, fathers. And then, they never grow to appreciate the equilibrium that it takes to manage those things, and to be in a relationship. And because this never develops, a rhythm of mutual appreciation and partnership never develops in those relationships with those that leaders serve under or that leaders serve over. And they are simply, they simply become lone agents in a world of chaos. And of course, that's just a perhaps. I don't know. 
Perhaps it's simply that we refuse to grow up. That we refuse to turn to God. That we wish to remain adolescent in our thinking and dull in our brightness. What I do know is that its effect is present in the church. I do know that its effect is present in even this church. There's a sort of quasi-pseudo-leadership philosophy, a type of self-regulation that we call leadership, based on a combination of mysticism and social contract theory, but not on God's word. They say, we're all leaders, but we're not all followers. And all the ideas of what a leader should have been that I've been given over the last month or so, I've come across utilitarian views on leadership. I've heard philosophical views on leadership. I have heard emotional expositions on the subject. But when listening to these ideas, I haven't meaningfully heard anyone really talk about the Bible in reference to their ideas about what leaders are and should be. I haven't heard anyone speak about God's word as the prime filter through which they view their leadership. In this church body, this should be a matter of incredible importance since just yesterday we affirmed new leaders. In fact, just this week, or was it last week already? I don't know. We had a new baby enter into the world and a new step of leadership. And just a couple months ago, with this one over here, we had a new baby. Leadership should be on your minds. And the right type of leadership should be on your minds. So in just this last week, we brought leaders into the forefront. Leadership should always be at hand. Now, some may try to relegate this issue to that of the covenant leader, so just the church leader, but I'm actually speaking of the greater topic of leadership. The whole crib. So, therefore, it would be appropriate for us to address the state of leadership as it applies to the biological community as well. See, what I hear about a good leader in the biological community is that a father should not be a disciplinarian. That a father should not be overly masculine. That a husband should be positional equals with his wife. That a husband should not accept submission from his wife or his children. That a father should teach his children to think for themselves rather than to think like him. That a father doesn't have to be defined by his teleological body parts, even, by which God defined him. And if you're wondering what I'm talking about, I'm talking about his penis. That a man shouldn't try to be a leader at all, but instead an equal, or at least a submissive. 
Of course, none of those views are biblical either. This isn't really unexpected, at least it shouldn't be if you're well-informed, right? Consider Barner Research. You guys ever heard of Barner Research? They're a very reputable company. Barner Research ran a report in 2017, which put out a study noting that only 17% of Christians who consider their Christianity important and regularly attend a church hold a worldview that can be considered biblical. Let me be clear. We're not talking 17% of all people who affirm Christianity. We're talking 17% of people who affirm Christianity and choose to go to church regularly. So it's a very small number of people who hold a biblical worldview, according to Barner Research. Now this means that statistically, since there's about 50 people in our church, in the 50 or so people who attend, which doesn't include all the people who are here today, that only eight of you have a biblical worldview. And only three of you are not elders. And when we talk about eight people with a biblical worldview, we're talking about eight people who believe the good teachings of the apostles. The ones that have been faithfully passed down for 2,000 years ago. Simple things like that absolute moral truth exists. That the Bible is completely accurate in terms of its principles. That Satan is real and not just symbolism. That a person cannot earn their way to heaven. That Jesus was a real man who was sinless. That God is all-knowing. That he's all-powerful. That he's our creator and that he is still in charge of his creation. Statistically, only three of you who are outside the eldership believe those things. The list doesn't even include things like whether Jesus is God. So statistically, only eight people in this church can confidently say that they believe those things. It's really no wonder why we would find other beliefs in the church. Let me be clear, I do believe that that statistic is different for this church. I do believe that. That our church, in specific, is better than that. Especially having known you and knowing what you believe and getting into philosophical debates about things. I do know where we stand, and I feel confident in saying that we do a pretty good job here of not being that statistic. However, that said, we should not rest on the laurels that our church might not fall into into statistics. We should be dismayed. We should be incredibly bothered. We should be jarred by the fact that the majority of Christians are not biblical in their worldview, but instead are some sort of hybrid, or as the scriptures would call it, adulterous. Adulterous versions of believers. So let me unpack that statistic more for you. Because as I said, I don't believe that we meet that statistic, but I do believe that those worldviews exist within our church. So, who cares what I believe on this subject? Let's see what you believe. When we say that statistically only 17% believe 
in historical Christianity, we said what the positives were. Now let's talk about the negatives. The other percentage is broken up into these things. 61% of affirming Christians who go to church on Sundays believe in some sort of New Age spirituality. If you believe that there are many paths to God, if you believe that the historical Jesus isn't as important as the story of Jesus, and if you believe that people are ultimately good, then perhaps you are not one of the 17%. If you resonate with postmodern views, then you're like 54% of them. If you're more comfortable believing that we can all interpret Scripture based on the brains that God gave us, as opposed to on the Scripture itself, if you've heard yourself saying that your view should be respected because everybody is entitled to have their own opinion, then perhaps you are not one of the 17%. 36% hold ideas that were more held by Marx than by Jesus. If you advocate the individual spirituality and believe that religion and the institution of the church is a machine that was created by men to oppress the people, if you agree with the statement that religion is the opium of the masses, and the only way to truly be happy is to not be shackled by the restrictions of a church, its leadership, its tithes, or its sacred texts, and its accountability and sovereignty in your life, then maybe you're not one of the 17%. 29% believe in secularist ideas. If you think that we must be seeker-sensitive as a church, if you believe that the best way to speak to the culture is to blend into it, to make ourselves appealing to everybody who might come through our doors. If you believe that we should not offend because God is a God of love, then maybe you're not one of the 17% of faithful. None of those worldviews have their origins in Scripture. A leader of the covenant community in a church and the biological community in the home is required to teach and uphold the biblical truths. There is no room for secularism, for Marxism, for postmodernity, or for New Age spirituality. And here is where the conflict in this day and age lies. Even in our church, bringing it back to the Bible, challenging ideas based in secularism, in postmodernity, or any other adulterous teaching has become a loathsome responsibility for the elders. If you only understood how difficult it can be to be winced at, to be scoffed at, to be diminished, to be straight-up persecuted for standing on the word of God alone. And not by unbelievers, of course, but within the doors of this church 
within the gatherings of this fellowship, you would quickly drop any pretense that you might have that being an elder happens for any reason other than that we are called to it. Because no sane man would want that responsibility. Second Timothy 4 commands Timothy to be vigilant because of what is coming in terms of his charge. This is what it says, starting in verse 1, 2 Timothy 4. I solemnly urge you, this is Paul talking, in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom, to preach the word of God. Be prepared, whether the time is favorable or not, patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them ever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. Now here we see two basic principles of the job of a leader. Whether a covenant leader, such as a pastor, or a biological leader, such as husband or father. And the first one is preach the word of God. It seems obvious, but it's not. When it says preach the word of God, it makes it clear that you are to do that whether the time is favorable or not. Leaders are commanded to be ready for God's right time to speak out, not simply when a pulpit is in front of them, but also in situations which are uncomfortable or even dangerous. And this is absolutely contrary to our squishy snowflake of a culture, which rejects not only the message, but also the tone and the timing of God's word. It is on this basis that you may have heard me reject the notion that one must be emotionally prepared to receive the word of God. Leaders are the ones who need to be prepared to make the uncomfortable and often unpopular leap over from man's sense of timing to God's. And what do leaders do in God's timing and not men's? What do they do despite the fact that it's unpopular and uncomfortable? They long suffer. They long suffer to correct. 
Leaders are to long suffer, to rebuke. They're also to long suffer, to encourage. But let's finish that statement. For those of you who may feel you have a caveat, let's finish that statement. They are to long suffer, to encourage with good teaching. Teaching that is in line with the scripture, that is in line with the teachings of the apostles and their doctrines, teaching that makes the body more like Christ. And we can know that this is the exact type of teaching that leaders are supposed to have because we are given the antithesis of it. One verse later. Verse 3 says, For there is a time coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will not listen to sound and correct teaching. They will follow their own desires They will seek out teachers who will satisfy their desires. The term in scripture is kind of disgusting. They will seek out teachers who will satisfy their itching ears to tell them what they want to hear. They will reject truth and replace it with their own myths. Statistically, all but three people, aside from the eldership in this room, are doing exactly that. We would each do well to ask ourselves where we fall short. Replacing God's message with the myths about him that we would rather hear. And those of us who are leaders, we would each do well to ask ourselves where we fall short. Not being sober-minded. Not standing on the word of God. Not delivering sound teaching. All because we want to be respecters of men. Because we want to be comfortable. We are called to act with sobriety toward God's goal, not ours. Not stumbling over every obstacle placed in our path, but instead being tenacious and being steady. How different is this than the leaders of mediocrity that we so praise in our culture? You tell me that you want me to be more approachable? No. You want me to be mediocre. We so praise it in our politics. We praise it in our colleges, in our churches, and even in our bedrooms. We want men of mediocrity. How we love to extol the virtues of leaders who make us feel good with their empty, vapid words about love and God, but who do not feed their flocks 
who do not protect their sheep from the wolves. These self-aggrandizing ear ticklers who would rather you smile at them but don't care that you're going spiritually hungry, who would rather that you profess them and their caring ministry but don't care if you profess the biblical Christ. These are those who sway with every new idea. They're unanchored, just like they want you to be. Every new opportunity to gain prestige, they have no convictions, no backbone. They want to be everyone's friend, but nobody's father. They make Christ into the Savior of all, but the propitiation of none. They make God into the love of all, but the judge of none. 1 Peter 3.3 says this, And in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. What they stand for is themselves. And they themselves are arbitrary. If you smile, they smile. They are your puppets. They do what you want them to do. And they make you happy with their song and their dance. They say what you want them to say because they're respecters of men. However, that is not the biblical model. Acts speaks of this. When Peter says that we must obey God rather than any human authority. See, leaders, they're called to stand up according to Scripture. To stand for something, not merely against something. We are to be clear-minded in every situation. This means to be critical. Let me say that again. We are to be clear-minded in every situation. This means to be critical. Taking everything that is said to us and filtering it. As a leader pleads for biblical cohesion in your life, they're often told that they're complicating things. But the truth is that you are simplifying things beyond what is wise. They are told that they're not to be afraid to suffer. They're told to work at sharing the gospel and to fully carry out the ministry. What do you suppose that that means? Well, the easiest and most obvious reading of the text would be that they are to stand firm on God's word. On God's narrative. Even and especially when others are attacking God or even them. A leader should expect that others will dissent. Let me say that again. A leader should expect that others will disagree 
with him. Especially as he teaches those who have spent their life in the world and are still influenced by the world's teaching. Remember what I said, statistically, only 17% of people who are in the church, who go to church every Sunday, actually stand on the teaching of God. Only 17%. Especially as he teaches those who spent their life in the world, he should expect dissent. He should view it as a confirmation that his position is a scriptural one. He should expect persecution every day because that is what he's called to. He's not called to people being happy with him. A leader should not be moved by the narrative of analytics, which tell him, of course, that his public approval rating has fallen. Jesus said in John, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that is why the world hates you. You think that you dissent because we're not nice enough? No. When we're giving you scripture and you dissent, it's because you are still following the world. If you think that a strong message will turn away an unbeliever who may not understand and give us grace, that it may be a bad witness, I will do you one further. A strong message should offend. A strong message should offend anyone who doesn't stand on the word of God. It should not call them into the arms of an accepting church. You have to understand that those people that you're talking about, that you say that we should be nice for, they are running to the precipice of hell. They don't need accepting arms in front of them. They don't need to be sped along on their merry way. They need an offensive truth. They need an offensive truth spoken in love. And when a person is running to the edge, to their death, the loving truth that is yelled out to them is stop and turn around. It's not, I accept you and your forward motion into the very pit of hell. They need to be yelled at to wake up. They need to be told to turn back before they run off that cliff. They need the message that Christ gave. Christ gave the message, repent 
and believe. You say that a strong message will turn away the unbeliever. I will do you one better. Without a strong message, the unbeliever will never be called to turn away from their path. And you who would offer acceptance rather than command repentance are complicit. Not in their lives, but in their deaths. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. We preach that message. And if you're still offended by that message, then the truth is that we should only scream it louder. And the truth is, is that there are many who have asked God into their hearts, but have not repented, who will one day stand before a God who doesn't know them. And then people wonder why I'm so serious. If you're not made uncomfortable by your pastor, if you're not made uncomfortable by your teacher or your husband or your father, when they challenge you on your worldly or cultural presuppositions, when they hold you up against scripture and your practices are found to be not biblical, do not assume it's because they're wrong. Don't assume that it's because they're wrong that you're uncomfortable. First assume that it's you. It's your sin nature that's rearing its ugly head, rallying against the word of God, its messenger, and ultimately the creator himself. Do not assume that because you sit in these pews that that makes you safe. There are many people who have come through the doors of our church and then right out again. They'll take six months. They'll take three years. They'll take ten years. Believing themselves to be growing and integrated because they feel that they are submissive to the system of church. 
But ultimately, when they leave, they leave dejected and feeling downtrodden. And once the initial infatuation with Christ and his body wears thin, they find that they feel as if they are in constant disagreement with the leadership. They don't feel that they should have to accept an authority of men. And as I've pointed out, statistically, this will be the future for many of you who sit in these pews today. And of course, I pray for all of our sakes that that will not be the case. But history tells me, as I look around at who stands beside me today and who stood beside me 20 years ago, that 20 years from now, when I retire, these people who are here today, but there tomorrow, will be far and few between. ABF was started in 2004. During that time, we had seven elders. Seven men in the eldership of the church and only a handful of the people. And as I look around the room, I know that only three of those seven elders remain. And only two of the handful that was here at the beginning are here now. Those who left were men and women with whom I fully believed that I would end my time in ministry with. That I would end my earthly journey with. But they're no longer here. And not because they were called away on some sort of mission. Not because they went somewhere to serve God. They left because their hearts were hard toward the leadership and the body here at ABF. And as I've gotten older and more wise, I have learned to hear the subtle difference in ideology when people speak. Because those people, they would quickly say that I have no plans to leave. But they would rarely say I have a plan to stay. And that's, of course, how they left the door open. To feel the control and the freedom to fully submit to themselves. Why did they leave? Without fail, they left for the reason that each person does. They left because they would not receive the authority of the leadership through the scriptures. They would mask it in different ways, but it's still the ultimate conclusion. They would say things like that they were jealous, even, of the leadership. Yeah, we've had people who said that directly and then left. They would say that they wanted to be in leadership, but they didn't want to go through our programming. They would say that they didn't believe that earthly leadership was godly. 
they would say that they just simply didn't like the people who were in leadership. They were offended sometimes by something that the leadership said. They didn't believe that there should be leadership at all in the church. They didn't believe that leaders should be compensated. We've had that happen. They didn't agree with whether the leadership was qualified. They didn't believe that leaders should have the ability to speak into their personal lives. It doesn't matter. None of those feelings are biblical. And not one of them even tried to make it biblical. Because it's not. They aren't biblical reasons to leave a body. It doesn't matter the claims that they made because they had no fact, no godly fact behind them. Didn't matter to them that they didn't follow the scriptural procedures for how to address the eldership or leave. See, ABF, we're not unlike other churches. We may not fit that particular statistic, but we have that same problem. We are not unlike other churches in this regard. People have left our church many times, and we would be wrong to think that it will not continue to be a problem through the years. And as long as we remain biblical, it will be a problem without fail, because the Bible is offensive to the world. See, the issue here is that man doesn't want to receive God. That's the issue. Man doesn't want to receive God. He wants to receive his love. He wants to receive his mercy. He wants to receive his grace. He wants to receive God's acceptance, but he doesn't want to receive God. Because, yeah, God is all of those things, but he's also... A God of wrath. He's also a God of order. He's also a God of anger. A God of instruction. He is a jealous God. So we will receive what we want to receive. But not what we don't want to receive. Man would rather have the God that he wants. And why is that? It's the condition of the heart. Because as the scripture says, we are a stiff-necked people. People who want our shepherd, but don't want him to have a staff. See, this is, of course, an incorrect understanding. It's an incorrect understanding of how we connect with God. Have you ever thought about the word acceptance versus receive? The truth is, is that we don't accept Christ. We receive Christ. The truth is that we are not to accept leadership either. We are to receive leadership. We don't accept the scripture. We receive the scripture what I mean by that is that they're different things. We don't accept these things. That is an inverted process. We receive them. We don't accept them. These things accept us. 
These things call us. They call us to conform to God's righteous standard founded upon the precepts of God's uncanny and holy word. We are to receive them, not accept them. We are to receive them and their truths based upon our belief in their message. And this is proven by our repentance, our turning toward God and away from our old lives. And it's upon this belief and repentance that the scripture affords us sanctification and spiritual maturity. And without our belief and repentance, we cannot accept these things. They are not on a table for you to grab when you want them, but not the other things. They're given to us. And you either take it all or you take nothing. By our... Yes. It's not on a table. It's not on a table open for the taking. Because if it was, then it would be by our own hands. And that would make it a work unto salvation. It would be something that I could accomplish. Put that table far enough away from me and then I have to walk to it to get it. It's a journey for me to have that. No, that is not scriptural. God brings it to us. You cannot reach for salvation. It's handed to us. It's handed to us individually. And that's God's grace. So we don't really accept salvation. I know that that's colloquial. I accepted God into my heart, but I challenge you, find me the passage that says that's what we do. Anyone think of it? It doesn't exist. It's not there. Instead, we receive God. And that's a huge point of the misunderstanding of modern Christianity, modern Americanized Christianity. I challenge you to remember this fact. Even the demons accept the truth that God is God. But they don't get the prize, do they? You know why? Because God didn't give that to them. You must, in your acceptance, take the step to believe that God is who he says he is, that Jesus is who he says he is, and then turn. Repent. I use that term repentance. Do you know what it means? It means to turn around. It describes the action of turning your body 180 degrees in the opposite direction in which you are going. That's why the message is repent and believe. It's not accept Christ into your heart. That is not biblical. It's useful, but only when paired with repent and believe. So there will be many of you who believe that you are of Christ because you have accepted Christ into your heart. But if you have not repented, 
then you're missing something. We don't like that. We don't like it. It offends us. And especially when it's given to us by people, we don't like it. We don't want to be told that we're dependent on someone, even if that someone is Jesus Christ himself. See, the process of repentance includes that turning toward God by turning toward his spirit, his word, and his representatives in his body. That means turning toward the Holy Spirit. That means turning toward the Bible. That means turning toward discipleship and mentorship. That means turning toward the leaders in the body that God has called. But often, instead of affirming and turning toward that which they hold, the leaders hold, and in turn them, we neither receive them or God's message. But instead, we lower them and their message to the level of acceptance. Rather than treat them as representatives of a power that is far beyond us, we treat them as if they are merely our representatives. Elected officials with an earthly intent to stand before God. My people, my brothers and my sisters, my children, that is not so. It could not be further from the truth. Your leaders are surely elected officials. That's true. But not by men. But rather by God. Even your election of these men, Adam and Colin, even in your election of these men in your church, church, your choice was to affirm them. To affirm the truth of their ministry, not to confirm them. In other words, you're saying, by electing them, whether you will submit to them, but you're not validating their eldership calling as if you have some type of power to say who is an elder or not. So if after you've affirmed them, you don't treat their work as holy, if you receive their calling as an outworking of a man's intent, mixed with a man's opportunity and a man's wisdom, you are diminishing the very work of God in your church and in your life. You're calling them and yourselves liars. If this is how you're going to act with a man that you affirm by your very presence in this church to be a leader from God, why are you in that person's care at all? I wouldn't be. This extends throughout the whole system of care. What type of wife are you? 
if you refuse to, to submit to your husband's rank as the head of the household? What type of child are you if you refuse to submit to your father's rank? Why do you even sit in the house of the Lord if you refuse to act on your affirmations? You're a user doing what's best for you. So when you speak to your pastor as if you disregard that he is called by God to lead you, as if his handling of the scripture is done with an equal weight and burden as yours, as if his interpretation is one voice in a sea of many, and conveniently his content is of the same substance as your own, when you treat him as if he has to prove the veracity of the scriptures, when he places them next to your ideas, it is on this basis that you should be afraid. Because if he is who he says he is, who you have affirmed him to be by your very presence in his congregation, then it's not his ideas that you have said that he's handling. It's God's. And in mistreating him, you have made a grave and grievous mistake. And even if you come to the correct conclusions in the end, your worldview is a gravely dangerous one. Because in choosing to accept rather than to receive the words of this man of God as serious, beyond the words of another man, you have reduced the very words of God to that of mere men. God's word, his message, and his people are supposedly within your heart. But the truth is that they're just one voice in a sea of many. Your belief hasn't produced repentance. You aren't turning to God. You have merely collected him to be put on your heart shelf. Like he's some precious thing for you to look at when you want to feel good. You accept that he can lead you, but you don't receive his leadership. Now you say that you don't want to be led astray. What are you telling me, Josh, that I have to just accept everything that everybody says? They're a pastor, so now I have to just accept it? Okay. You say that you don't want to be led astray. But I say that if this desire creates a faith which produces disrespect and rejection of scripture in favor of deflection and culture, if you're not wanting to be led astray, produces disrespect in favor of deflection and culture rather than in favor of scripture, then you have already been led astray. You have kept the door open 
to your deceitful heart, as we all have, instead of submitting to God fully. And you say, well, what if they're wrong? What if that person is wrong? Or worse, what if they're a false prophet? Which I'll be talking about next week. Surely wisdom should keep my heart closed. Surely it would be wise for me to be cynical about some things. I should be able to be cynical about things like family and country and other important things. Aren't we called to test the spirits, Pastor Josh? But this is, of course, the lie, right? This is the lie of the deceitful heart. The truth is that Scripture has already told you. It has already told you how to weigh the words of a leader. It has told you what fruit you should look for. It has provided you what criteria to give dissent under. And it has commanded you to be serious in these things. So when you say that you need to test all things, but then you refuse to run any of the provided tests... then you aren't telling the truth about your intentions, are you? You don't want to be... You don't want to avoid being deceived at all. You want to avoid being controlled. And that's the truth. Because if you didn't want to be deceived against the God whom you have believed in, then you would judge the message of the man by the cohesion of his content. Does he measure to Scripture? But when you receive their message, do you do this? Do you first weight it against the established Scripture and doctrine of the apostles? Or do you first weight it against how it makes you feel and your cultural worldviews? Do you judge the messenger by his content rather than his appearance? Do you find yourself attacking his age? Do you find yourself attacking his looks? Do you find yourself attacking his maturity, his earthly qualities, but not what he is actually saying? Be careful because the way of a fool is right in his own eyes but a wise man accepts counsel. So be warned. We may even know the scriptures well, but we can still be a fool. Case in point, those who would strip the rank of an elder because he isn't married. You know, I was almost not allowed to be an elder because I wasn't married. Where are those elders now, those people who said that I shouldn't be a deacon, that I shouldn't be an elder? Well, there's only two people left from the church that aren't in the eldership that were here back then. Where are those people? Case in point, those who would strip the rank of an elder because he doesn't have grown children. 
What you need to understand is that even the qualities listed in the pastoral epistles for a leader of God's people are parameters. They're parameters that are subject to the content of his revealed scripture. Don't forget for a second that the nation of Israel itself rejected men time and time again who seemingly didn't meet qualifications of the Aaronic priesthood or the Mosaic law. The so-called leaders of God's people stoned those men. They spit on them. They colluded against them. They accused them of being unclean. But when Christ came on the scene, whom did Jesus accuse of being unclean? Who did he call whitewashed tombs? New on the outside, but rotten on the inside. The teachers of the law back then did not even recognize God himself. They called him a drunk and demon-possessed glutton who didn't celebrate the Sabbath and rejected the laws of Moses. Why did they do that? Because they weren't truly interested in the spirit of the law. Instead, they believed in the power of the law unto itself. A law that could never produce salvation. They mistook the law of Moses as the rule rather than the guardian and trustee of our inherited freedom, as Paul calls it in Galatians. Do not be so quick to judge these leaders by their accomplishments, by their accolades, by their appearances, or lack thereof. Do not be so quick to interpret their work, not by the content of their message and how it measures against Scripture, but by their ability to adhere to the letter of the law. Because the same fate that applies to those so-called leaders will also apply to you. Because as we judge, we are judged. Many will come saying, Lord, we did great works in your name. And he will say, get away from me, for I do not know you. For many of you, that alone should cause you to repent because you are guilty of judging in this manner. Because when you have been challenged by a man of God, you have judged that man through the filters of your own insecurities rather than by the measure of God's word. And my hope is that this will cause you to turn towards scripture and to turn in love to those who labor for you, but getting over that nagging feeling that we are being talked down to or that what the pastor says isn't very woke or that what he says makes me feel bad can sometimes be too difficult for our deceitful hearts. My friends, if you are not used to feeling like you don't measure up and you don't like that feeling, then perhaps you should spend more time in Scripture. That feeling that you have, 
that says that my pastor doesn't think that everything I do is good and that I'm not perfect just as I am. It's called being convicted. Convicted. As in tried and found guilty. Guilty by the Holy Spirit. Guilty by the word of God. Guilty by the example of Christ. Instead of taking your repulsion and forgetting that all of your goodness amounts to a menstrual rag before God, and then deflecting and transferring your disgust back onto his messenger, perhaps you should repent and reflect instead on where you have fallen short. The church is not here to make you feel good. The church is here to help you to be holy. This is not Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. We once had somebody leave the church who claimed that we just wanted to change him, that we didn't like him as he was. My response to that, do you want to know what it was? Of course. What do you think we're doing here? This isn't to say that your concerns may not be valid. Maybe they are. Maybe your pastor, your husband, your father, your Sunday school teacher, your Bible study teacher has made a point that's theologically weak. Maybe that's something you should dissent on. But in this case, that scripture that you spent so much time studying that taught you that it's okay to dissent, are you not being just as disingenuous as them if you forget that it tells you that you are to speak with love to your leaders? in the same way that you are to speak to a father. The idea that you are to speak from a position of humbleness humbleness and reverence in your founded tenacity toward the scripture is everywhere. In other words, even if those people are wrong, you are not right if you speak to them with contempt or disregard. 1 Thessalonians reminds us how the elders are to view their charges. For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. In other words, we are to view the flock as our children. We are to work among the flock as if we are the fathers of the flock. Yet often our leaders are not afforded that emotional connection from their people. Instead, we are treated as intruders in the household. Instead, we are treated as intruders replete with violent attempts to repel us from speaking in your personal lives. Now, admittedly, that is an area where I can call myself guilty. 
especially in my youth, my own heart of stone relished in being able to shoot people down quickly, especially leaders. Point out every area where a minister of the gospel may have been weak, and I was less than gracious in my own tenacity towards Scripture and toward those who led me. And perhaps, perhaps it's God's sense of justice that this is the area where the majority of you often fail us. And it's the area where you most likely will continue to. The fact that you often speak to us as if we are not your fathers. But instead your elected officials. As if you have a right to impugn our character. Just so that you don't have to listen to scripture. As if you have a right to place cultural considerations upon us that the scripture does not place. As if you have a right to speak over us and reject the very word of God so that your cultural norms of age requirements, of political correctness, of social niceties and decorum can have an equal voice in the holy assembly of our jealous God. Criticizing us for emphasizing the things which scripture teaches rather than the things which our wicked hearts long for. We receive endless streams of lies, endless streams of accusations about our intent to control you as we shear you the way that a shepherd should. We constantly have to deal with you thinking that your opinions stand able to confirm our calling to you as if your earthly wisdom, your studies in pagan mythologies, your time spent on this sinful earth can somehow discredit the rank and revelation which is given to us as leaders and the fruit which is laid before you every day, the fruit that you use every day to nourish your relationships in your families, in your jobs, in your personal life. The fruit that you use to rebuild your lives out of the sinful shape that it was in. That is ugly. That is an ugly behavior. It's sin-filled And it's shameful. It's a shameful way of treating those who look after the flock. And I don't care if they're the worst father, if they're the worst husband, pastor, or teacher. It is shameful. We should not think that we have a right to confidently step outside the lines drawn by Scripture, which we have both received and affirmed simply because we think that we're smarter than it, that we've lived longer than it, that we have been around the world and other arrogant and hubristic euphemisms for having a rebellious heart in need of repentance. And that goes to all of us. It doesn't just go to you, though it certainly does. It goes to me as well. It goes to all the other elders.
you have to take into account that maybe that leader is Elijah. But that leader could also be Jonah. That God calls who he wants to, how he wants to. Do you know who the greatest among the prophets was? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a wild man who did not fit the qualifications of the, of the letter of the law. And Jesus called him the greatest among them all. If you cannot live under this truth, if you're going to pick and choose by what makes you comfortable, why are you even here? God's leaders are not your elected officials. Any more than a child elects his parents. It's God who gives us to you, and your affirmation of that fact requires ownership of it. When speaking to children, we are told to give honor to our parents. When speaking to wives, we are told to honor our husbands. When speaking to society, we are told to honor the government. Even when speaking to slaves, we are told to honor our masters. Ephesians 6 says this, Try to please them at all times. This is speaking to slaves. Not just when they're watching you. But as slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all of your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. And you might say, I'm not a slave. I'm an autonomous and free individual, and I don't need to be looked down upon or talked negatively to or judged by anyone because the United States of America affords me the right. But the scripture would disagree with you. As Christians, we are slaves. We're slaves to Christ. Christ is our master, and we are to serve him, and we are to do this with all of our heart, enthusiastically expressed in the way we submit to those who are in authority over us. How can we begin to talk about leadership if we keep insisting on our autonomy? If we do not follow a shepherd, we are not part of a flock. If we hear his voice and do not follow him, then what the scripture says is that we do not know him. Consider John 10. I tell you the truth, starting at verse 1. I tell you the truth. Anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice, and they come to him. And he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. And after he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They'll run from him because they don't know his voice. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant, and so he explained it to them. I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. There are true sheep, and there are 
false sheep. And the ones who know the voice of Christ hear that voice and they do what? They follow. Now, if you hear the word of God, but don't follow, then are you his sheep? See, it's not just about being a sheep. It's a little bit like believing that the gospel, that the message of the gospel is that God saves us from our brokenness. Have you heard that? That's big on Christian radio. It's, it's big in the book circles of Christianity. The message of the gospel is that God saves us from our brokenness. We're broken. He has to bring us out of that. But the truth is, is that our brokenness isn't our issue. It's merely a symptom The gospel is not that Christ saves us from our brokenness. The gospel is that we have been saved from our rebellious heart. And that rebellious heart is what causes our brokenness. In order for it to be true repentance, we have to have something to turn away from and something to turn toward. We are not merely sheep. We are not these wild, majestic things that sit on green pastures. We are sheep that belong to a shepherd. We are not saved into unaccounted for riches. We are saved into an accounted for inheritance. An inheritance with a hefty price tag and an expectation attached to it that we will invest it to great returns. But we don't like that definition. We would rather revel in our freedom so that grace may abound. You see, to truly talk about leadership, you have to be open to truly being led. In order to talk about leadership, you have to be open to truly being led. Not by an elected official with your best interest at heart, but an appointed official with God's best interest at heart. A person who is vetted by confirmed by and measured by how he toes the line of Scripture. But you must be open to being led first. Are you? Can you honestly say that when I give you Scripture and you tell me to lighten up, that you're open to being led? Now we're going to discuss leadership for the entirety of this year. But I don't see a meaningful discussion taking place if you do not have this framework at the base of things. I can teach you all the qualifications along with the other elders about who a leader of God is called to be, what he should look like, how he should function. But if you have an underlying misconception 
of who he is in relationship to God and who you are in relationship to him, then history tells me that when that leader shows up to care for you, you might just crucify him. And I have no wish to watch you make void the sacrifice of Christ. He died so that our ugly, shameful, rebellious hearts may die with him. He died not so that we would have a safe place to shout our little blasphemies from. He didn't take your sins with him to the cross so that you can be wild and free and act like little spoiled children of God in your green pastures, eating the day away without a care in the world. He died so that you could live knowing who he is and following him. And if you can't accept this, I can't teach you anything no matter what information I put before you, no matter how gentle I say it, no matter how I package it, because the problem isn't me, it's not James, it's not Adam, it's not Colin, it's not Pastor Dad, it's not even the Word of God, it's you. But I trust that the statistic isn't true for this church. I trust that you are his people, and that when he speaks, you do know his voice, and you will follow him. So I'm going to leave you with this thought. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Obey your spiritual leaders, and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls, and they're accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy, and not sorrow, because that would not be for your benefit. Here are my questions. Are you a good follower? Do you listen for Christ's voice and the voice of your leaders? Or do you just listen for someone to echo your own agenda? What percentage of your filter for truth is biblical versus cultural? We can spend like 20 minutes discussing. You want a hug?